Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Dr. Dahlia Scheinlin about the formation of Israel's new government. Then, John, Natasha, and I talk about the new government's diplomatic relations with the United States and the region. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dahlia Scheinlin is a political pollster and political analyst in Israel. She has worked on eight national campaigns in Israel and is also a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York. Dahlia, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me on the show. Israel has just had a transition from Benjamin Netanyahu after 12 years. Do you think that Israel is at an inflection point or is it in the middle of a muddle? Maybe a little bit of both, although I wouldn't overstate the case of an inflection point. There has been a tendency over the course of the last two years and for much of the time that Netanyahu was in power to project what's going on here as if it's all about Netanyahu. And he started everything that happened and he's responsible for every process the country has gone through over the last dozen years. And it's not really true. Netanyahu accelerated some processes that were already in place that had begun, you know, years or even decades before. He certainly brought a unique governing style that has had a, a deep impact on the country, but he was basically leveraging elements that already existed in the Israeli political culture, particularly social divisions. And so I don't think most of those things are going to change overnight with him gone. Certainly not overnight. The biggest thing that might change is sort of lowering the volume on that deeply divisive, bitter, friend and foe driven approach to governance and the rhetoric that went along with it, which was often very severe, very targeted at different communities within Israeli society. I think that might change. I I hope that will change. The new government has been trying to portray that that will change. But is that really going to change the deeper direction of Israeli policy, the deeper conflicts within Israeli society that underlie those divisions? I don't think so. Those things are going to continue. And when I mean deep divisions, I mean the question of whether Israel is ultimately a secular civic society or a theocratic society, the question of whether Israel is basically roughly within the territory, the region, I'm not going to talk about borders, but the region pre-67 or whether it is an annexationist power that essentially governs the entire area between the river to the sea in perpetuity and controls millions of Palestinians. Those are the dilemmas that preceded Netanyahu by decades. Those questions are going to go on, and I don't think they're going to be decisively resolved with the new government. So I don't really see this as a deep turning point, but simply the end to a particular era in Israeli politics and governance. As a pollster who looks a lot at Israeli public opinion, one way to look at the election results is that Netanyahu's ideas captured well more than 60% of the vote. Does Netanyahu's leaving the scene perhaps mean that Israeli society will coalesce around the Naftali Bennett, Gideon Saar, Likud, Yisrael Beitenu view of life, which would be far to the right of where certainly a lot of American Jews are and and far to the right of, of where a lot of supporters of Israel around the world have been for decades? I think that's a very important 
insight based on the reality of how the vote broke down, which is often lost in the in the discourse about these four elections, which is that 72 seats out of 120 parliamentary seats in the Israeli Knesset went to parties that are ideologically committed to the right wing. That is definitely the most number of seats for the right wing in absolutely in the last 20 years. And depending on how you count, it might well be the most number of seats ever for right wing parties. What's interesting about it is that it actually doesn't reflect the percentage of Israelis who self-identify as ideologically right-wing, which is just around 50 or 52 percent. Having said that, those were the election results. 72 seats. If Netanyahu had resigned, as it was rumored that he might, even 24 hours before the establishment of this government, there would have been a coalition within minutes of right-wing parties. Essentially, it would have been a pretty easy coalition for them to form, and that would have been a massive coalition for Israeli society. So we don't know what will happen if Netanyahu leaves the scene. In fact, some people are saying the worst thing that could happen to the new government is that he would leave, which was why it was being rumored that this was going to be his final trick before the government was established. Having said that, I don't think there's much chance of it. Netanyahu apparently isn't quite that committed to establishing ideologically right-wing governments Uh, Because he insists on remaining within the political system, he simply moved chairs yesterday from the chair in the Knesset reserved for the prime minister to the chair of the head of the opposition. And he has conveyed on no uncertain terms that he plans to stay as a very, very active and fighting head of the opposition determined to bring the government down. To me, one of the great surprises of the last election was how good a politician Yair Lapid showed himself to be much better than former Chief of Staff Benny Gantz, who Netanyahu seemed to run circles around. How do you think Lapid is going to try to deal with Netanyahu, and do you think he'll be successful? It shouldn't have surprised anybody that Lapid was a better politician than Benny Gantz, because Benny Gantz had zero political experience when he began running against Netanyahu. Yuri Lapid has been in politics since 2012, when he announced the formation of his party. He first entered Knesset in 2013. He has served as a coalition partner, as uh, minister. So it it was natural that he would have political experience. Having said that, I think that he matured tremendously during the course of the last two years, in which, as you pointed out correctly, again, he demonstrated remarkable political acumen, also a rare quality in Israeli politics of patience, the long game, and self-sacrifice, which is something nobody really expected of a man whose image was of being a movie star, talk show host, a little arrogant, a little empty. And those are not empty values. What we don't know is what they will mean in terms of where Yair Lapid is going ideologically and on policy. We don't know that yet. I think that the best thing he can do is keep this coalition together. And that is his biggest challenge because Netanyahu's only route is to try to dismantle the coalition. And so As much as I think the country deserves to see what Yair Lapid's ideological commitments really are in the immediate future, he will have to continue applying those pretty impressive skills at keeping the political glue together. The power to cause other parties to compromise is really what he brought to the table, and he will have to continue doing that because there will be crises Immediately. On Tuesday, there's supposed to be a, you know, the big flag march that was ultra-nationalists marching through Jerusalem. Who knows what kind of a crisis that will cause? It could be that they won't have 24 quiet hours in office before Yair Lapid has to work whatever magic he managed to pull to get those parties together in the coalition to begin with. And I do think it will fall to Yair Lapid to some level. Naftali Bennett is prime minister, but let's remember he only has six seats in the coalition. I don't see that Yair Lapid is simply going to fade into his role as foreign minister and 
uh, have no influence for the next two years, given that he heads a party with 17 seats, the biggest party in the coalition. So a lot of Israeli politics seems to divide on tribal issues, whether it's peace with the Palestinians, whether it's the role of religion and politics. And, and this coalition is so narrow and so fragile, it seems hard for me to imagine that they can make any movement on any of these big tribal issues. Are there other issues that Israel can make movement on? Are there non-sensitive issues that the coalition can get behind and perhaps get Israel off of the, the sort of tribal tone of so much of its politics? I do think there are some areas where Israeli society kind of agrees that they don't entirely disagree. Most parties are committed to economic growth, and many think that there needs to be some more action on the government to help reduce severe social economic inequality. I think that's something that they can marginally agree on, um, especially in the post-corona era when there are some clear problems with the Israeli economy. Everybody agrees there's a problem with the deficit right now. Everybody agrees there are still too many people on furlough who haven't gone back to work and that there needs to be a plan for that. They may not agree on how to do it, but those aren't so sensitive in terms of national existential issues. Some of the uh, ministries that have gone to the left-wing parties actually are less controversial. Meretz holds the health ministry. Now, who can disagree on the importance of the health ministry and the kinds of things we need to be prepared for in the coming years following the corona crisis? Uh, I don't think we're going to see existential debates over that. Meirab Micheli, the head of the Labour Party, is transportation minister. Now, that has political sensitivities because it involves the integration of the West Bank into Israel, and it's not clear exactly where that will go. That's not the most important part of it. Primarily, that's about things Israelis agree on, which is that we have an enormous congestion problem. Israel has one of the most crowded roads in terms of number of cars on the road in the entire OECD community. You don't have to be a data nerd to know that when you're sitting in traffic for two hours to get to Jerusalem, there's a problem. And so the government can make progress on these things. The other major issue that I think will lead to very, very deep divisions is the issue of the Israeli judiciary, which for extremely fundamental reasons has become an enormous source of contention, largely because of the Netanyahu era, but not primarily because of him. Netanyahu only personally got involved in that over the last couple of years, coincidentally or not, as he was facing indictment. But there have been far right-wing forces, including very active members of his Likud party, to portray to the Israeli public that the judiciary is a rapacious force that has overstepped its bounds, that has encroached on the will of the voters, and is trying to impose a liberal left-wing agenda on Israeli society and must be restrained. Now, the current government includes some figures who have been very central in that, including the prime minister, Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked, the other partner running his party. She was justice minister during the peak of this campaign. She led the campaign. She appointed close, by my count, close to half the judges in the country. The justice minister is Gidon Saar. He's a Likud breakaway. He supports reforms. And when the right wing in Israel talks about reforms in the judiciary, they usually mean attempts to restrain the power either of the Supreme Court or other judicial figures. And one of the first things Gidon Saar insisted on in the coalition negotiations was dividing the role of Israel's attorney general. It's considered a means of weakening that role and exerting more political control of the sitting government over uh, the attorney general. I don't know whether this government can agree on that fundamental issue. So there are some issues where they can agree that are not so controversial, but there are also some dark horse issues, if you will, that haven't been prominently on the agenda that could also torpedo successful functioning of this government. The, the 
politicization of the judiciary and attempt to capture judiciary is, is something we've had come up in, in U.S. campaigns. And in fact, a number of articles have compared Benjamin Netanyahu and his supporters to Donald Trump on his supporters. As you look at things, on what aspects are those comparisons useful and where do you think those comparisons break down? There are a lot of aspects of overlap. Netanyahu has employed classic tactics of populist leaders. Now, there can be populist leaders on the left and the right. And on the right, you can distinguish them by calling them nationalist populists. And Netanyahu uses all of those techniques. In fact, he was using them long before Trump was even on people's minds as a potential politician. In the 1990s, Netanyahu was already vilifying the media, calling them left wing and saying they were out to get him, essentially characterizing them as an enemy of the people without necessarily using that term. At that time, he also knew the appeal of reaching out to Israel's most aggrieved communities, playing up on their victimization and marginalization and taking it upon himself and saying they are trying to persecute me just the way they've persecuted you. My victory is your victory. And that is a theme that Netanyahu has basically, I think, burnished and refined and honed to perfection, starting from when he came back to office in 2009. And it has to do with the themes of the real people, the real the true voice of the people against the you know, cabal of the elite. In terms of his techniques, in terms of his perfecting the populist style and leveraging it, and certainly pitting different groups one against the other, targeting internal enemies, whether it's the media, but also the Arab minority in Israel or leftists, um, and really speaking about them in such severe terms that as it approaches incitement of points, yes, there is everything in, in common with Trump. Starting in 2009, there was a wave of legislation that essentially violated liberal principles, but in many ways was considered anti-democratic. And that legislation has gone on throughout the decade. All of that under Netanyahu's watch, where I think it differs from those other nationalist populists, is that Israel is involved in a protracted conflict with the Palestinians. Why are these two connected? Because many of the laws that they have tried to pass under Netanyahu are particularly focused on constraining criticism of government policy with relation to the occupation, strengthening the Jewish identity of Israel, stifling <laughs> expressions of Palestinian identity, whether it's in Israel or anywhere else, the particular form that it's taking ha is, is largely around the conflict. And I think that that lays the groundwork for weakening opposition to Israeli policy of either occupation or even annexation, weakening the possibility of Palestinians protesting that policy, whether citizens of Israel or those under occupation, and anchoring and emphasizing the unquestioned dominance of Jewish identity, despite the fact that Israel is year after year, decade after decade, making its control over the Palestinian areas permanent. And so I think there's a somewhat different motivation for the tactics that we've talked about, this specifically the illiberal and less democratic direction of the nationalist populism in Israel. So the tactics are very similar. I think the motivations and the underlying reasons are somewhat different. I've seen different accounts of how much Israelis care about their relations with the United States and how much they care about the American Jewish community. How should we see the range of opinion in Israel about both the United States and, and the importance of, of strong relations with the American Jewish community? On the issue of the U.S., there's not that much that people disagree on. There may be contradictions in what they think. So the thing that most Israelis agree on is that America is Israel's best friend. It has always been Israel's best friend, and it probably will continue to be Israel's best friend, and that Israel should take that friendship seriously. There's, that's where they agree. There hasn't been that much awareness in the past over the deep partisan divide over Israel. 
among American policy circles and even in American Jewry. There is a little more awareness in Israel over the years. And the contradiction lies in the fact that despite the fact that Israelis see this relationship as so key and so important, they don't invest in learning those nuances. And they weren't particularly upset when Netanyahu endangered the bipartisan nature of the relationship historically by taking such a, a sort of nasty line on the Obama administration. It was not a respectful relationship. It really was uh, a relentless message that the prime minister just hammered on about every day about how, how bad the administration was, how anti-Israel it was. Never mind, of course, speaking to Congress, uh, going behind the president and the unrestrained attacks on the JCPOA. There was no attempt to acknowledge that the JCPOA was at least an attempt to try to restrain Iran's nuclear program. It was all about kind of a concerted American attempt to give Iran nuclear weapons. That was the only line you heard in Israel. Obama eventually was replaced by somebody that Israelis considered to be a great friend to Israel, Donald Trump. Israel was one of the only countries in the Western world where Trump had majority approval ratings. And now that Trump is out and Biden is in, you don't see Israelis particularly nervous about that either. They say, you know, even if there are right-wing commentators in the news saying, oh, this is worrying, none of them are really willing to go up against a new American president and take the initiative to really slander that kind of government, including Netanyahu. And the Israeli public is basically sort of assured that even if it's a democratic administration, Biden seems like a nice guy to them and they trust that America will always be on their side. So it's, I would call it a bit of a complacency about the American relationship in the sense that it's so unshakable that even Netanyahu's controversial position doesn't really change the reality. Even a new American president from the Democratic Party doesn't really change the commitment that America has. And I don't think too many Israelis are really concerned that America would do anything dramatic to pressure or limit Israel's range of action, because in fact, they're right. America has never done anything that really caused Israel to change direction. Arya Scheindlin, thank you for joining us on Babel. My pleasure. Excellent questions. Next, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about the new government's diplomatic relations with the United States and the region. Dr. Scheinland spoke about how Netanyahu's departure will affect U.S.-Israeli relations. How do you think Netanyahu's departure will affect Israel's diplomatic standing in the world? It felt to me like a lot of the change in Israel's global position was really a personal product of, of Benjamin Netanyahu. Not only the outreach to Russia, but the outreach to China, the outreach to India. There are a lot of ways in which, as a confident world leader with a relatively stable coalition, he made this a project, and Israel is much less isolated in the world than it was for, for many decades. I think people in, in Western liberal democracies feel Israel is some way under the gun, but for Israelis who look and say the biggest countries in the world, countries like China, countries like India, Israel is more welcome than it's ever been before. I think a new prime minister with a, an unstable coalition, without the experience, without the, the standing that Netanyahu had, will have to put a lot of the diplomatic relations on ice until Israeli politics settle down. On the other hand, Yair Lapid, who demonstrated much greater political skill than his predecessors, is now the foreign minister. And Yair Lapid may be able to use his skill with the diplomatic relations to build a platform for his future political career. 
I would say that Netanyahu was doing this kind of bilateral transactional relationships with world leaders, even constituencies within foreign countries before Trump was. And that was kind of a style that was quite reminiscent of the Trump administration as well. And I think what we're going to see, although I, I think that this coalition will be limited, is the turn more towards multilateralism, democracies that are interested in multilateralism, like in the EU or with the Biden administration, for example. I've heard that symbolically, one of the new government's first expected decisions will be the approval of 35 ambassadorial appointments, which Netanyahu had been holding up for over six months. Now, one of the strange experiences I had with Israeli politics is at one point I was talking to people in the foreign ministry when Avigdor Lieberman was the foreign minister. And I asked him about an Israeli policy and I said, that's not my policy. Go ask the minister about his policy. And there was a sense the prime minister had one policy and the foreign minister had another policy and the foreign ministry had a third policy. We may start to see more unity uh, as the government comes together. And that, that might also have an interesting impact on, uh, on Israel's international relations. And certainly Lapid has an interest in, in rehabilitating and strengthening the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which can certainly have some kind of effect on foreign policy moving forward. Although I agree with Dahlia that, that it could be limited, especially in the, in the early months of this coalition. What impact will his departure have on U.S.-Israeli ties? That's going to be very interesting. I mean, Netanyahu had uh, sort of infamously uh, put all of his eggs in one basket, much to the dismay, I think, of probably a lot of Israelis. And, you know, Israel went from being kind of a bipartisan issue in the United States to Netanyahu having a very sort of toxic relationship with the Obama administration and really supporting the Trump administration moving forward. He also deeply developed ties with the Christian evangelical community. And you have major figures within the evangelical community like Mike Evans saying that they're just not going to support Israel in the way that it used to, they're going to continue to support Netanyahu within the opposition, which is pretty striking. I have a feeling that other members of the Christian evangelical community will continue to support Israel much in the way that they had. But I can see how Netanyahu can use those strong ties to also somewhat weaken this coalition. Because as we know, here in the United States, the evangelical community is a very strong constituency, about 25% or more of the voting base here. And as Natasha suggests, I think it, it makes it easier for the Biden administration because there will be a, a sense that the Israeli government is not trying to play American politics. There's another question of, of will a centrist shift in Israeli politics blunt what has been an increasing split from Israel among progressive Democrats and certainly among younger Democrats? There's a lot more skepticism about Israel than there is among older Democrats. I'm not sure that goes away. It feels to me like the consensus on Israel, which really was sustained for decades, began to break down. And I think now that it's been eroding, I think Israel has a lot of work to do, and it may choose not to do it to try to bring along progressive Democrats. So as, as Daya suggested, there's a solid majority in Israel that considers itself right wing. I don't know how a solid majority right wing country can sustain 
broad support with the Democratic Party that in the United States is getting more progressive, uh, especially among younger voters. I, I completely agree. I think that this trend within the Democratic Party was somewhat inevitable, just demographically speaking, not just younger voters, but also more diverse voters. These were people that had issues with Israeli human rights violations long before Netanyahu. So I think now you're seeing them becoming a growing part of the constituency and the Democratic base, but you're also seeing them actually rise to levels of leadership and becoming representatives within Congress. So I think that was a shift that was going to happen, no matter who was going to be prime minister of Israel. To be fair, if Israel retains something close to 100% support in the Republican Party, and even 50% support in the Democratic Party, that still leaves you with Israel with 75% support in US Congress or, or among partisan Americans or whatever. So it's a mistake to overstate the decline in US support for Israel. But I think it is worth noting that the unanimity of American support for Israel, certainly among the political class, is diminishing and I think likely to continue to diminish over time. Do you think Benjamin Netanyahu was particularly skillful at engaging with Arab leaders in the region? And do you think that, that his departure will affect those ties? In my experience, there was a certain macho approach to, to Israel's enemies that frankly, all the Arab leaders I've met completely share the sense that they should have no time for the Muslim Brotherhood. They look down on, on all these calls for democratization and human rights as just opening the door to extremism. They think the Iranians have to be resisted firmly. And the way to deal with Iran is from a position of, of strength rather than conciliation. That tracks not only with other leaders in the Levant, North Africa, the Gulf, that's the way leaders in the region see the world. It's not the way a lot of American diplomats see the world, but it is the way that, that leaders in the region see the world. And how either Yair Lapid as the foreign minister or Naftali Bennett as the prime minister, how they communicate that resolve while still trying to build a bridge to, to more progressive Americans, to, to Western Europeans, my sense is that there's going to be so much to do domestically in Israel to keep this coalition together that nobody in the Israeli government is going to really have the bandwidth to put a huge amount of time into developing Israel's regional ties in the near term. Yeah, I mean, what I've heard from experts reporting on the ground about this is that the next few months, if not the next few days, are going to be much more about survival than trying to push forward any kind of real agendas which will be difficult with such a wide-ranging coalition. But that said, Naftali Bennett did mention sort of the agreements made through the, the so-called Abraham Accords and ways to continue to take advantage of that. I could say that probably King Abdullah of Jordan is, is quite relieved that Netanyahu is potentially out for a variety of reasons. They had a very tense relationship. But that said, I think that Gulf countries were looking to make amends with Israel for a range of different reasons, including their sort of shared animus towards Iran, but also shared military equipment, surveillance equipment. These are things that won't go away with Netanyahu. Dr. Scheinland spoke about this as well, but what do you see as the parallels between Netanyahu and Donald Trump? I think that they're quite striking, actually, and they continue to be more striking as time goes on. I mean, 
Bibi Netanyahu said that it was the greatest election fraud in history. Well, we're quite familiar with that kind of language right here just a few months ago. But also Dahlia mentioned other things like packing the courts with conservative judges, trying to discredit certain elements of the judiciary. These are things that were happening right here in the United States as well. And what's a bit more alarming, I think, is is sort of calling on people to support him no matter what even if he needs to leave and, and move into the opposition, and doing so in a really divisive, vitriolic way, but then coming back in a sort of lukewarm way and saying, oh, we don't mean that or we don't mean violence, when you've been instigating this kind of behavior through your rhetoric for many years. And that was quite striking strikingly similar to what we saw in the Trump administration and in the days running up to January 6th here. You know, there's been a lot of cross-fertilization between U.S. politics and Israeli politics for a long time. And the way Dahlia got into polling was she got involved when James Carville and Stan Greenberg, American pollsters, were involved in an Israeli political campaign about 20 years ago. And that was her introduction to polling. So I think that the fact that there's cross-fertilization, the trends in the U.S. and Israel march in parallel, isn't that surprising? I think one of the key differences is Israel splits on so many different lines than the United States does. We largely have a right-left split, and there's a cultural piece. Israel has a right-left split. They have a religious-secular split. They have an Ashkenazi-Sephardi split. They have an Arab-Jewish split. Israeli politics are a kaleidoscope, and it, it feels to me like that is just different from the United States. The other piece of this that matters is that the right wing in Israel is much stronger than the right wing in the United States. I mean, if you just look ideologically, the right wing coalition has a clear, powerful majority in Israel. It's the split of right wing politicians from Netanyahu that pushed him from office. I think Netanyahu helped move Israel to agree with him ideologically in a way that Donald Trump was never able to move the U.S. population firmly to the right to agree with him ideologically. And that's a big difference. One thing I would say is that I don't think we've seen the end of Donald Trump in American politics, and I don't think we will see the end of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israeli politics. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.